0: welcome back to episode 50. That's a milestone number. We should actually be pretty proud of that. Yeah. Of <laughs> uh, the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Klichenko. And as if our last guest resume wasn't impressive enough, mind you, we had Alan Flanagan on for episode 49. He was a lawyer for 10 years and then got his master's and then got his PhD. In fact, he's actively working on his PhD now. If you thought that couldn't be of one-ups. Well, our <laughs> our guest today has two PhDs. She uh, has been featured in Scientific American, published in high-impact peer-reviewed journals. She's also received her black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a multiple-time uh, international competitor and master world champion in Jiu-Jitsu. She just blows Alan out of the water, just like yeah. on face value. <laughs> but, um, uh, this uh, guest husband has been on the show uh, twice, uh, James Hoffman. Uh, this guest works for Renaissance Periodization and has co-authored one of their books, Renaissance Woman, which many of our clients uh, have really enjoyed and which we recommend to a lot of our clients. Uh, but without further ado, uh, we welcome Mel Davis. Mel, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: I'm super happy to be here. Thank you guys for having me.
0: So b- before we get into... Our, our outlined story for today, our outlined topic, I just have to ask, how did you fit that in? <laughs> what is the what is the timeline, if we can just get to learn a little bit more about you before diving in?
1: Yeah, for sure. So my PhD, it's actually a single PhD in two topics. Gotcha. So it did take longer, but it's technically one degree. Um, it took about seven and a half years to get my PhD and I Finished that in 2013, at which point I was about a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I think, which is kind of a halfway point, halfway through. So um, post-PhD, I did research for a few years, and then I started working with RP a couple years after that, Um, and I got my black belt last year, so that's rough
0: time. Oh, wow. Congratulations.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: And did you... And James meet through RP?
1: Um, kind of. So Dr. Mike Isertel, who you guys probably know. Yeah, we've um, had Mike. He and I became friends about 12 years ago because he was good friends with my grad school roommate. And then oh. Dr. Mike went to grad school with James. So that's mm-hmm. how I met James.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it's cool to see how uh, all of RP has stemmed like, largely from... Eastern Tennessee State University. Denver, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, just kind of learning about the connections made in between has been fun, especially as the company grows. Yeah. So um, where we're starting today with Mel is talking about uh, client expectations. We're going to talk about client expectations in the context of fitness uh, as a whole. And Mel, based on uh, you know, her professional experience, will be able to talk Uh, about this from a training standpoint as well as from a nutrition standpoint. Uh, But that first topic is just understanding the expectations involved in either the nutrition or fitness plan that you are about to commit to because it seems that, and when we were talking, I believe it was two episodes ago with Bryce Lewis from The Strength Athlete, he was talking, or our topic was the coach-athlete relationship and how rather than perhaps seeking uh, coaching, of course, we work with clients and want to showcase their progress where you perhaps want to look past the numbers or the weight lost on the scale uh, from the coach that that client may have had success with and rather just like the relationships that that client has had with that coach because perhaps you might gleam more into the breadth and depth of that development, be it in a diet or in a fitness plan that will uh, just honestly involve uh, perhaps multiple setbacks and just learning through trial and error how to refine that plan. So we're going to just kind of kick it off, Mel, by talking about expectations and what happens perhaps when there are kickbacks and what is going on Mm -hmm. psychologically and and how can we perhaps talk about uh, the behaviors involved and habits that can be improved upon.
1: Yeah, so I think um, it's sometimes easier from, you know, the coach standpoint, dealing with a client. So one of the biggest things I think you can do as a coach, and I'll, I'll go through coach and doing it for yourself as well, which is more difficult. As a coach, I think one of the most important things you can do with your client is set up realistic expectations from the outset. So a lot of times, and I did this early on in coaching, made this mistake many times, you sort of jump in, they tell you your rough goals, you get them started on the diet, and they kind of don't have the idea, you know, that there's going to be hiccups in the diet, that it's not going to be a linear sort of progression of weight loss or weight gain or whatever they're working towards. Um, And same with training, they don't really have in their head visualize the idea that obstacles are going to occur. They have the end goal, and they have their current state, and they kind of expect to just shoot right on over there. So I think When you're working with a client, taking them through the, like, what will we do when obstacles pop up and how will we deal with this? And yes, we expect this and your weight's not going to go down perfectly linearly, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the more difficult thing is when you're trying to do this for yourself. And I think a lot of people, even super experienced coaches, even, you know, myself, when I write my own diets and things like that, I sometimes forget to walk myself through what the obstacles will be and how I'll deal with them. And I think one of the things that can improve success the most is to have a a really defined plan for those expected obstacles. So part of your coaching or personal um, diet and training plan should definitely include writing down all the obstacles you might face. You know, there's a a wedding or some travel or some things you're going to have to deal with and then outlining exactly what you're going to, what trade-offs you're going to make. Are you going to take a little break or are you going to stick to it all the way through? And if so, how? Um, just mm. really specifically outlining those things, I think is really helpful.
0: Now, do you wait, Mel, to kind of have this first obstacle come up and see how the client responds? Or is this something that happens in an early evaluation process?
1: Yeah, nowadays I try to make it happen in the early evaluation process. I ask them, you know, like, do you have travel or any big social events or anything like that coming out during this, you know, upcoming three-month block that we're doing a specific set of mesocycles in a specific diet. Um, and then make a plan with them, you know, like, let's say they say their sister is getting married halfway through their fat loss diet. Just say, okay, so this is your sister's wedding. Presumably it's going to happen once, you know are you okay with trading off enjoying that experience for some of the weight loss and then talk through how to manage it and make it maybe less impactful. You know, maybe they can cut calories earlier in the day and combine a meal, do some extra cardio or something to make it less of an impact, but not, you know, eat chicken and broccoli and not have champagne at their sister's wedding kind of thing.
2: I couldn't imagine saying no to a toast because. uh,
0: Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was was actually,
2: yeah, I was actually uh, recently just listening to another podcast on sigma nutrition where um, he had a psychologist on talking about kind of reactive versus proactive Mm -hmm. um, uh, planning to deal with stress and how really things are just stressful when it outweighs our ability to cope with it. Um, And this is like what we're talking about is a perfect example where you know setting having those plans ahead of time makes it a lot less stressful because you have the coping um, mechanism for lack of a term to deal with it.
1: And getting as Mm -hmm. specific as possible. um, They've shown not actually with diet, but with sort of uh, other goal oriented tasks where you set out an exact scenario in your mind. Like if I'm offered a second piece of cake, I will say this and you actually outline the sentence you'll say and rehearse it. And this kind of thing makes it, because the knee-jerk reaction can be, let's imagine you did, you're did. you at the sister's wedding, you've been on a diet for a month and a half, so you're a little deprived already, everything's already tempting, but you've decided to make a little trade-off, you're going to have a little cake, have some champagne at the toast, things like that. But the knee-jerk reaction if someone says, do you want a second piece of cake when you've been dieting and you're a little tipsier than usual because you're sensitive to the alcohol that you've had, would just be to say yes. But if you sort of replace what would be the default response with something you've rehearsed, which is, no, thank you, I've already had some, or I'm I'm kind of on a diet, so I'm not going to have a second piece, and you've actually rehearsed those specifics, it's a lot easier for that response to come forth instead of the default, which mm-hmm. would be, yes, get me more cake, I'm hungry.
0: Yeah, and, and that definitely makes sense, especially if someone is fearful that... And, you know, I'm not quite sure why this exists, um, nor will I attempt to create a, a reason for it. But, you know, there could very well be judgment uh, that that person feels uh, surrounding that uh, event. You know, well, um, why would you uh, put off that piece of cake? It's your sister's wedding. Why would you not toast? And it, even I actually would say, OK, you know, it is your sister's wedding. So uh, certainly while I would respect anyone's decision, uh, you know, albeit. To like while it's improving their health, it is how do we know when perhaps things might be taken a little bit too far or when it's just a little bit too much? When things thinking could, of
2: every specific scenario,
0: yeah, things could perhaps be calculated but not perhaps fall into a, something that could perhaps be obsessive or lead to negative, uh, right. mental health yeah, no,
1: absolutely. I think that's that's really important as well. I think, um. Something that I think is super important that applies to that is how critical it is during a, like a maintenance diet period to Mm. let loose a little and sort of enjoy yourself so that you don't get into this habit of feeling like all food is, you know, all good food is bad and you should never have popcorn or pizza or beer or what have you. And I think also just picking reasonable trade-offs like, there are things that are more important than your diet. One would be your sister's wedding, right? And you're there, you enjoy it, but you also don't have to have two pieces of cake necessarily. You can go and enjoy and have some champagne and have some cake. And if you're in the middle of the diet, you can say no to the second piece of cake because you don't want to mess yourself up too much, but you do want to enjoy. On the other hand, if you are in a maintenance phase, just have the second piece of cake. So that kind of thing, kind of defining your periods where you're, strict and goal oriented and periods where you're coasting more and you can give and take
2: Mm. yeah i think that's really good Uh, and just to to go back a little bit we you mentioned that you would talk about kind of how a coach could set expectations and an individual uh do we cover that or is there more you would want to say on that
1: um yeah i think when you're doing when you're doing it for yourself it can be a little bit harder especially if you have some experience like I myself will fall into this. I actually have James James and I write diets for each other now just to deal with this a little bit. But you'll have the tendency to be like, Well, you know, most people can't lose the maximum every week for the whole diet, but I know this stuff, I'm good at it, I can't. And you probably can't because <laughs> we're all human and most of the time perfection doesn't happen. So making sure to keep your own sort of goals realistic is always a little harder because you always um especially if you're experienced in fitness and diet and training and such, you think you can handle more because you know more, but knowing more doesn't necessarily make you less human, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. So when someone has expectations for a desired outcome and, and perhaps things aren't going the way that they would have preferred, right? They could see it as being in their, locus of control or something that's outside of their locus of control? Or are there certain types of styles of questions or ways of communication that you have developed over the years to communicate with people who are perhaps uh, in this kind of fixed mindset, external locus of control, and how you go about reframing that? And Maybe if you have an example that you could give.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think that's the internal versus external locus of control is probably one of the most important aspects, I think, of any kind of goal setting success. Um, So when you have a client, when you're dealing with a client who has a very external locus of control, you want to ease into changing that um, because it can feel very much like an attack if you don't. So I think talking to them so let's say that you have a client and they've messed up on their diet big time they shoot you an email or give you a call and they say you know what this weekend I went to a barbecue I had a little chicken and then I got out of control I had 10 beers and then I figured the weekend was ruined so I went to Chinese buffet and had some cheesecake you know this kind of thing happens and they say but there was nothing I could do about it because, you know, my friends were doing it and there was nowhere else to eat or they have these reasons that they couldn't have avoided it. And I think when they have a very strong sense that it wasn't their fault and there was nothing that they could do, even though it was very clear there was, I think the first thing you do is just address like some small part of it. Like, well then on the second day after the barbecue, maybe you could have skipped going to the restaurant with your friends or maybe you could have, you know, um sat down and talked to yourself about why the mistake happened or maybe this isn't a good time for you to diet and things like that and you just sort of slowly bring them into the idea that maybe there's some behavioral thing that they could have done to alter the outcome um and i think it depends very much like you were talking about earlier the the client coach interaction can be as important as you know the principles of the diet and training, because being able to communicate with your client and knowing how much you can push them and how much you can sort of throw it in their face, that they did have control, um, can make a difference in how they take the news.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We work with athletes on, on it's, it's, it's quite a range. People are performing at very high levels and crossfit, powerlifting, weightlifting, and also people who are looking to resolve chronic pains and I always say like, I, you know, I can give me someone who has an injury. It's what I'm uh, experienced with. I, I feel like I'm, i I've experienced uh, chronic pain myself. I, I can uh, kind of walk that path with that client. I, I can't imagine the uh, challenges emotionally and psychologically to that, uh, that would kind of enter the fray of a, a coach athlete in the nutrition uh, field. Are there times where you are uh, finding yourself kind of relying more on the, because, you know, one of the PhDs is in behavior, certainly, right? Do you have to bank more on that, that you would say, than perhaps the principles behind what is making the diet effective for them in the first place?
1: Yeah, I think it does lean towards that sometimes. And in fact, I think. There are times when you can sacrifice some perfection and diet principles for better sort of behavioral oriented outcome. So Mm -hmm. what I mean by that—that's confusing. For example, like um, intermittent fasting, not a big fan. It's not a great idea for muscle retention, etc. But some people really love the delayed gratification of eating everything in the evening, like just forcing through the hunger all day and eating everything in the evening. So when there's cases like that, and people are sort of hell bent on a structure that doesn't work, if that structure makes them more compliant, then you have a behavioral justification for sacrificing some of the diet principles. So in a case like that, I might say, you know what, have some protein shakes during the day, and have at it with the structure, you know, works for you. And you know, like, mentally will allow you to stick to the actual calories and macros for the duration of the diet. Is that, does that answer your question? Is that what you were getting?
2: Yeah. I I, I was actually going to ask before you went into that kind of how, you know, with the research coming out more on like refeeds and um, uh, Jackson Pios Pios was recently on maybe a couple episodes ago, ago, and he talked about um, kind of, you know, there's no real like specific time plan right now. They're studying like three weeks on one week off as a diet break. Has that changed kind of like your uh, approaches to dieting and maybe like if someone does go off the rails, just like being, making it a little bit more like, well, yes, that can stall, but it's going to be okay in the long run.
1: Yeah, for sure. So on the, on the topic of the, we'll call it, uh, intermittent dieting to <laughs> differentiate it from intermittent fasting. But um, I think that diet structure can be excellent for athletes, but I think it's really difficult for most people. So I've been toying with that a little bit just because um, I don't, as a jujitsu competitor, I don't do a lot of hypertrophy training most of the time. I try not to because it's just more fatiguing and it's not as helpful for my training and competition, but that doesn't mean I don't sometimes need to lose weight and I don't want to lose muscle. So I've been toying with the two weeks of dieting and then back to maintenance kind of thing. And it is a really a big mental struggle to make such a short, um, such a small amount of progress, you know, just losing, you know, two and a half pounds or something, and this was within the noise almost. So you don't really have this good sense of accomplishment. And I think for most people, it's probably a bad idea to do those shorter stints. Um, Sorry, I dove down that tangent line of intermittent dieting, but I think that a lot of people do a lot better with a longer diet, more progress. And I think a, the more strict you can get them to be for the duration of you know, 8 to 12 weeks, the more sense of progress they have and the more motivated they are, and then they can jump back into maintenance and not be so strict. I think psychologically that's what works the best for most people to make the most efficient progress in general.
0: That, that mm-hmm. definitely makes sense. Um, it. Bridging the gap to this next topic, you had mentioned, Mel, that you bring up expectations quite early on in, in this uh, new client experience, in this on onboarding process. When you receive the client's goals, uh, presumably they're, they're quite straightforward, whether they want to gain muscle or lose fat, as this is almost exclusively with nutrition clients. How do you begin to tease out? Um, I've found that in my own experience with, People who have fitness goals, it it takes a little while to find out if their goals are actually authentic, if it's what they want, or if there are any confounding pressures that might lead them to reach out to you when in fact they might be happy, they might want something different. In fact, they might want a body composition that would require a different diet plan than they had originally Mm -hmm. thought. Um, What does this process look like, and how do you begin to help people recognize that the goals they've set out for themselves may not actually be right? So
1: sometimes those things don't, uh, you try to manage expectations from the start, but sometimes those come out later in the diet or like later in the process as you see what they're doing and how they're feeling about the process. I think one of the ones that comes up really often for myself and a lot of others at RP is you get people who are coming in and saying that they have these athletic goals and it was very specifically athletic performance. And after a little bit of back and forth with them, you realize what they really want is to look good naked. They just think that they're not allowed to mm-hmm. say that it doesn't sound cool. It's not, you know, it's too vain, but it's perfectly human and a natural thing to want. So I think that's one of the things I I test the waters with first when I get a client who says they're focused on athletic performance, particularly if they're not a competitive athlete. Um, And a lot of times a little talking will get them to admit like, yeah, they just really want to look like an athlete, which is fine. But um, it's something important to know because you're going to program a diet pretty different for someone who's really interested in performance with a little bit of weight loss versus someone who's interested in looking as lean and jacked as they can by the end of the diet. Um, And then some of the other stuff comes out later, you know, you'll have someone saying they want abs, and they're really interested in aesthetic goals, and that's really what they want to work on. And then throughout the diet, you see them sort of sacrifice progress for all kinds of social activities and fun things they're doing, like, you know, maybe they have a CrossFit competition, they go out for pizza afterwards, and they don't want to miss out on that. And you kind of have to to have a come to Jesus talk with them. (laughs) About whether it's abs are really worth the trade-off they have to make, especially for women, having abs is a pretty it's a pretty uh serious project, and it takes a lot of upkeep because most women don't stay at around you know 15 percent or whatever it is the minimum body fat percentage for a woman is basically where most women have abs, and that's a full-time project. You can't even really have a nice relaxed maintenance because your default body fat percentage is. The set point's almost always going to be higher than where abs are for women. So that takes a lot of sacrifice. And you have to decide whether or not those abs are really worth those sacrifices. And I think for most people, they're not.
2: Do you think – this just popped in my head when you were talking about the athletic versus maybe more aesthetic um, goals or look. Do you think there's – I was just thinking in my head. I don't know if I could really – go one way or the other, that there's maybe a misconception that all athletes yes. are like six pack. Yes. Uh...
1: Particularly in things like, like power lifting. Like if you check out some of the best power lifters, most of them don't have abs. And in fact, a lot of times they have better leverages. If they have a little higher body fat percentage, yeah. they recover from their training better if they're eating a little more and things like this. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people think to be a competitive athlete, you need to be, you know, Exceptionally lean and ripped all the time, but it's it's just not the case. If you're training a lot, even in you know non-strength sports, you're probably going to recover better and be able to train more effectively if you're eating a little bit higher on the calorie side, maybe staying a little bit fluffier year-round.
0: Mm-hmm. So we've had uh, you know, or you've had the talk about expectations over time. You're teasing out if the goals are actually in line with what they would with what they want um i I think something that uh requires really good coaching and, and keeping an eye on is as things perhaps fluctuate when the person's let's just say their cognitive load just kind of what's going on in their lives is just repeatedly preventing them despite their best intentions it might be their own goal Right? They might be aware of potential setbacks, but if, if certain things in life are just not allowing for the progress that they would like to see, um, do you have a process for trying to reframe those goals or begin to create habits that might be a little bit more appropriate and approachable? Is that kind of like a goal setting 101 talk? What, what might that look like as things yeah. begin to change for that individual?
1: Yeah. So I've had a few clients like that who just had kind of their life, their job their family or whatever it is, is just really taking up a lot of their, you know, willpower, stress, etc. loads that you need to do diet and training. And what I usually try to do is, like you said, reframe the goals, like, look, you can get rid of your family and get rid of your career if you want. (laughs) Or we can make slower progress and you can, you know, have a a little less horrific time in your life for the next year, whatever it is, lose the amount of weight you want to lose across a period of a year instead of across one, three month diet. And that's just the position you're in. I think um, a lot of people with training and diet, and this is sort of a side tangent because we just had the, um, just did that Reddit. Ask me anything session with Mike yesterday, and there are a lot of people because Mike also does jujitsu. There are a lot of people asking about, you know, physique and jujitsu, and can you be good at both? And like anything else, there's you have a limited capacity, you have a limited capacity for stress, you have a limited capacity for, to some extent, for, for willpower, you have a limited capacity for your physical training, um, and all of these things come together to give you a set of options. And if your career and your family or all the other things in your life are taking up a huge chunk of your capacity for stress and willpower, et cetera, you have to take what's left. And that's, that's what you have to work with and there's no way around it. And I think, once people realize that and realize that being, you know, superhuman and sleeping three hours a night and just making it happen isn't what they're supposed to do. It makes it a little easier to swallow because a lot, I think a lot of people don't conceptualize the idea that they have these limited capacities. They feel like they should just be able to superhuman through it and make it happen. It's kind of like the, um, Instagram inspiration meme way of thinking about it. Uh, needs to be erased
2: yeah I I was just as you were saying that I think and realizing that there doesn't there's or there is usually a lot of guilt around yeah like that stuff as well like oh I should be able to do this or I should be this strong or this lean right um but not realizing that like, well, you're not only an athlete or you're not only this, like you're a father or or like a son or a boyfriend or any of those things. And those are just as important, if not even more important than these Mm, other. More more important. Yeah. (laughs) Than these other things. But I I also have one more more question on, on top of kind of finding out what you really want. On an individual level, how do you use how would you recommend someone going about kind of teasing out within themselves what you think is maybe more internal versus the external things influencing them?
1: Um, You mean in terms of figuring out their personal goals or figuring out their um,
2: sort of point? If, If you didn't have a coach to help you kind of find out what your, what their, what your personal goal is. And this is just yourself sitting down to kind of find out what you really want versus kind of what maybe, uh, is you saw or what societal pressure may be putting on you, I guess, for lack of a,
1: yeah, I think, I think that's a tough one. I think, um, I've told clients before to just go sit down in a room by themselves with a piece, piece of paper and a pen and write down, you know, what they think their goals are. If that's, you know, abs and, a 300 pound deadlift or whatever and then think about or and going you know going on all-inclusive vacation to Costa Rica with the family like all the things that are most important that make them most happy and then think about what ways in what ways those things are opposed and how much of each you're willing to sacrifice for the other so if you sit down and you say you know like my I have a goal of like getting this promotion at my job. I'm gonna to have to work more to do it. Uh I also wanna run a marathon and I want to have abs and like increase my bench press. And then you think about okay, which ones of these are going to prevent the others, which one is most important to me? What am I willing to give up from each sort of bin of importance for the sake of the other one? Uh,
2: it's funny every time I talk about goal setting i i usually like to think about it in terms of uh training structure and how with that kind of scenario you could think like okay well this is my focus for now and then as maybe once i get that promotion next year marathon marathon right running will be exactly going, I guess, you know, periodizing things like that yeah
1: definitely and i think you can there's a lot of goals like that that you can periodize including you know like dividing up work family vacation fun training diet all these things you can definitely periodize because you're not going to increase your bench and run a marathon at the same time you're probably not going to get a promotion and you know go on a vacation and train really hard at the same time but all those things are possible within a life you know
2: yeah
0: Yeah. with training it's uh, a, a bit more objective you have an athlete, sports—you have the specificity of the sport. You also have the results. A bit easier to create uh, a needs analysis. Something that James spoke at length about when he was on. So you know, it—it it just points to how important it is to have that authentic goal, that authentic experience with kind of what you're about to set forth on uh, with fitness or with nutrition, because that really doesn't <clears throat> like that that wants analysis, right? That has to be genuine because that's going to reflect the program so it, it how how it, it seems hard and i think this is just kind of what you were touching on and it it i think really uh highlights how important it is for the coach and athlete to be communicating clearly such that where they claim their uh needs analysis to be actually is where they want it to go uh, just because it, it isn't something that has numbers attached to it or like a say unless they're, you know, say a a figure competitor or a bodybuilder or like a a goal weight. Um, so that, that's, that's really interesting. I I had not thought about it like that.
1: Yeah. And in addition, I think when, um, a client or when you come up with a specific goal for yourself, I think one of the, a really important first step is to sit down, you know, write out, let's say client wants to lose like 25 pounds, write out exactly when the diets would happen, and you know, outline the specifics of what it takes because a lot of people have a picture in their head of what they want to look like or what they want to achieve, but they don't have a picture in their head of what that will take. So when you, the client says 25 pounds, you're like, okay, we're going to shoot for 15, the first diet, 10, the second diet, these, you know, January through March is the first diet. And then the second diet's going to be in the summer and you set that all up and they're like, Oh, wait that means like the end of my diet is when I'm on a week vacation or that means that I'll be traveling for work for you know three weeks during this other diet and it's going to be really hard to do. So once you have all those specific details down, you can actually determine whether it's possible and what you're going to have to give up and how much you're going to have to struggle to get to that end goal.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I was just um, jotting down because, you know, with all of this, I I think it's, it's easy to get uh, overwhelmed and try to make a lot of change happen at once. We had spoken earlier about an example of how you might influence, if at all, a diet during your sister's wedding. And to some, that might seem, some listeners, that might seem pretty intense. Um, But indeed, that could have an impact on someone's diet. Uh, But, you know. With my what with something that might also be relatable, uh, I've heard you speak about this too. That let's say someone who has never dieted before comes to you to make change. Uh, they're perhaps a first-time dieter. They recognize that they want to lose body fat, um, and you know maybe jumping into the nuts and bolts of macros might just be a little bit too much. I've heard you speak about how hey you know let's just get well, let's first become educated as to where you could, say, receive receive good protein sources. And let's just try to get good protein sources at each meal as like a really nice way to start this goal towards improved health. So it it seems like what you would have to do and and what it sounds like you do quite successfully is you're able to help people who are experienced dieters get the goals that they're after, but also perhaps ease first timers or people who are are new to dieting into just kind of perhaps taking smaller chunks out of these goals that they might want to. Because I I imagine, and I believe I even heard you say that the more weight someone hopes to lose, the the faster they look to do that, which could be be not sustainable. So if you might speak to how taking smaller chunks out of a goals might be very helpful. Yeah, definitely.
1: I think that's something really, really important. And what's kind of ironic is that a lot of people who have more to lose want to lose faster, but they also tend to have even worse habits that they need to get rid of or change. Um, and one surefire way to make someone unsuccessful is to just, you know, completely overhaul their life and habits. It's, it's hard enough to make a single tiny change to our habits as, as adults. Um, it's near impossible to make a, you know, full scale switch of lifestyle and habits. So just picking, starting with one thing, like you were saying, if someone just doesn't really even know about macros, they've never counted calories. They just don't have these things as their sort of default understanding when they're consuming food. The first thing to do is not even to think about weight loss, but just to get them starting to eat, you know, like you said, figure out like, what is healthy protein? How can I get that several times a day? Maybe add some veggies once a day if I haven't eaten veggies before and just leave it at that until that's a habit. And then it's very easy to sort of tack on little changes over time. It's very difficult to take someone who's been eating fast food three times a day and not thinking about calories or macros at all and have them, you know, eating six meals a day with 20 grams of protein and 30 grams of fat and, you know, that kind of change is massive and it's almost definitely going to lead to failure. So taking, um, baby steps is, is really important. It's really hard to convince people. But, um, my sort of analogy is if you have never run before and someone tells you to run 50 miles, you're probably going to die or get injured and you're never going to get to that final end point. That was the goal. If someone tells you you need to run 50 miles, but you have two years, you're going to be able to get there without hurting yourself. So um, what I kind of try to use to convince people to take it nice and slow and do these baby steps is, would you rather, you know, crash and burn and never get there? Or would you rather definitely get there in two years? And it's logically makes more sense. Like, of course, I'd rather get there than never get there. But they don't, you need to convince them that 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 is the price they'll pay for too much change
2: too fast. So when goal setting, um, because right now I, of course, was talking mainly about uh, fitness and nutrition, is how many goals, or is there like a number through literature of how many you can set at the same time? So let's say I was setting a nutrition goal, a fitness goal, but I also want to add a goal at at work, in my relationship. Is is there like a certain number that we can have and also you mentioned um when forming habits like stay with one until that habit is formed is there any literature on how long that takes or kind of when Yeah you know? actually
1: there is and I think it's not it's obviously not a precise number and I think it's very much like you guys are familiar with Mike and James's MRV concept I think it's kind of similar there are some people who have a little greater capacity capacity um, to make more changes and to make them faster. But I think most of the literature suggests, and this isn't based on um, diet and training, but in other on other um, goal setting, uh, three to six months of doing something usually makes it a, a habit if you're consistent for three to six months. And then one other thing to think about in terms of time is generally people have a difficult time visualizing past one year so you know how like we can visualize certain sizes like you can visualize what 200 pounds looks like or what maybe even a thousand pounds look like but if someone asks you to visualize what you know ten thousand pounds looks like you can sort of imagine it but you can't conceptualize it as well so it's kind of like that with time so planning it's okay to dream further than a year out but Planning a year at a time, especially for diet and training, I think is best practice.
0: Yeah, I, I've even heard uh, you know, friends of ours who are trying to take athletes at any point in the quadrennial to the Olympics. It's just, you know, hey, one year at a time, there might be like themes uh, or not really themes, but there might be, of course, uh, greater emphasis on, on pushing and making progress closer towards that goal a little bit more lax almost to be uh, synonymous with say like a maintenance phase <clears throat> as you described earlier, but it, it's, it's never more, uh, a coach will explain than like a year by year, even when we're talking about such a specific uh, time oriented goal. I, I think that's, that, that's really interesting. Um, one question I had and, and I find that this is a challenge um, because I don't quite know, a way to improve it. I, I don't really know if there is um, a solution that can be solved by the coach, but perhaps just would love to hear your take on this based on your experience is that we know a uh, social support plays a, a huge role in adherence, right? Whether it's through uh, nutrition or through fitness. I, I think I saw one slide it, the successful dieters versus non-successful dieters, what percent, of that group had social support. Uh, you know, What do you do as a coach when you have a client who unfortunately does not have that social support and you might feel the extra, I don't want to say burden, but the extra responsibility that you are that person's social support? Do you have a, uh, any considerations for that or have you found that to be a challenging instance?
1: Yeah. So just I'll answer the exact question in a minute, but just to back up, for a second. I think a lot of people create a situation where they don't have social support when they don't have to. And I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. There's kind of a people are embarrassed sometimes that they're on a diet and sometimes it's because they're overweight and they've done a lot of diets and failed on a lot of diets and they're afraid to tell people they're trying again because they're afraid they'll fail again and have to tell them they're failing again. Other times they're already fit and they maybe experience some pushback from their peers. You know, they're starting a diet and all the other girls are like, why are you on a diet? You're so thin already. Sort of this pressure to hide the fact that they have um, goals to further their fitness even more. All sorts of reasons that people feel like they need to um, not divulge that they're on a diet. But one of the best things you can actually do is tell all of your friends and family what you're doing because that pressure often helps people to adhere better. And it gives you um, a way to deal with, you know, going out to dinner or doing things like that. You don't have to hide in your home and not see any of your friends and family because you don't want to go out with them and admit that you're on a diet and order, you know, the chicken breast and lettuce. So I think first make sure to talk to people about sharing what they're doing with their friends. Like most of your friends and family, if you sit down with them and say like, this is my goal. It's reasonable. It's healthy. It's something I want to do for myself and it's important to me. Most people are going to be supportive of you. If not, maybe you should find some new friends, you know, um, if you actually have a reasonable, healthy goal, then if you express that to people, they are usually supportive. But in the case where they actually don't have a lot of social support, um, and you are that social support, it, it is a more intensive coaching job for sure. And I, I'm not even sure that a coach alone can shoulder all of the um, what would be the ideal social support, because I think in general, social support has to come from more than a single individual to be, you know, maximally effective. But it's definitely yeah, a more, a more intensive experience, um, being the social support for someone who doesn't really have that And I think it requires a lot of uh, reminders that they're, you know, they're doing great, that it's not expected. Perfection isn't expected. That consistency is the most important and um, highlighting the progress they are making. Sometimes people can't see that for themselves.
2: Yeah. I definitely know that, that kind of like when you're, when you're kind of what you said earlier, when you're on yourself and trying to plan it all, um, you kind of tend to miss that, oh, you are progressing or there are these things happening and you don't really have that kind of bird's eye view to actually mm-hmm. see all of that. It So with goal setting and behavior change, I feel like there's, well, I guess with everything in the internet now, there's a ton of information out there um, and maybe some people who are not putting out the best information. Um, but I was wondering if there's any particular myths that come to mind um, similar to fitness and nutrition that uh, come out with mis or just misinformation or misinformation that happen with goal setting and behavior modification that yeah that just come to mind um, when you think about it.
1: Yeah, I think um, some of the main ones we touched on a little bit with sort of the Instagram inspiration meme stuff. One of the ones, I guess the two that sort of bother me the most that I think are the most counterproductive is, one there's this idea that to be healthy and fit like you never touch ice cream you never have a beer like you're always eating chicken and broccoli and that never changes and you know you only put those things in your body your body's a temple that sort of <sighs> uh, idea yeah. and i think it's it's really counterproductive and i think the people who end up being the most successful if you know aesthetic and physique goals are what's on the table are people who actually do take a maintenance phase, and they do enjoy food, and they don't create the situation where good, tasty food is the enemy that they must always um, avoid because it just leads to burnout and binging and sort of unhealthy relationships with food. Um, so, that's one of the ones that bothers me a ton. And the other one that bothers me a ton is the sort of like, I wake up in the morning before everyone else, and I train so hard, and I go to bed after everyone else and uh this sort of idea like that you never stop and you have to be superhuman and you can do anything just keep pushing when really good training and good athletic and aesthetic progress is made by people who also get good rest and know when to take a break and can auto-regulate and you know deload when they feel themselves getting pushing too far and i think that sort of ability to auto-regulate and recognize when you need rest and recovery is, is as important as anything else, but it's sort of uh, frowned upon.
2: Yeah. We, we actually had a uh, Jamie Tartar on, and she's a, a neuroscientist and we were asking her uh, about this kind of idea as well. And maybe kind of more of the grander societal pressures that are put on us with kind of that, like, Oh, you just go hard all the time. Yeah. And, uh, if you, go home early from work, you're a slacker. But in reality, it really is like, just, you know, just like training that if you take time to recover, that you're going to perform a lot better. Um, And if you really take care of yourself in all aspects of life, you're going to be much more productive and likely be healthier as well. And so on and so on. And um, how there's, like, I, I experience this very much as well, like guilt around not working and watching Uh, a movie at times or or other things Mm -hmm. similar to that
1: yeah same yeah it's difficult it's difficult to do even for yourself when you know it's good when you're a productive person and you're used to making progress and things like that taking a day off and vegging on the couch just feels wrong it's sort of pounded into our heads that that's not allowed or that's lazy but it's it's actually more productive sometimes to give yourself that time because you end up being better at everything else you do and more effective. So
0: now I know that I think it was perhaps in the winter time or early winter, maybe fall time. You and and, and James and Mike were doing a lot of travel, if I'm not mistaken, through RP. Um, and you know, I, I was actually um, and speaking up, upon this whole, like, uh, you know, warrior mentality, I think it's very much a Western culture, yeah. uh, phenomenon. Uh, we went, uh, my wife and I did on our, on our honeymoon to Thailand uh-huh. and we were just in simply introducing ourselves or as it would come out in conversation as Americans to other European people, uh-huh. they would even say in finding out that we were two weeks, uh, off for our honeymoon saying, Oh, can you Americans do this? Can you, can you, uh, you're so used to working all the time. And do you, do you find, or did you find that in any of your, um, uh, speaking opportunities internationally that perhaps the, uh, ideas of behavior change or the challenges to fitness or to diet, uh, sustainability was at all different or, or um, did you have to revise those talks or find, uh, different ways of communicating the facts that you hope to, to initially get across?
1: Um, not necessarily changing the talk so much, but there is definitely like differences in base understanding of different concepts in different countries. And I think you're right. Um, Europe had a much, has a much better time with sort of deload recovery time, Rests and things like that, they tend to not have the stigma of laziness associated with those things that we do. Um, And I think, like you said, it's just built into the culture, they tend to have longer mandatory work time off and vacation time, they tend to have longer time, um, maternity and paternity leaves and things like that. So I think the idea that rest is important comes a lot more naturally to um, a lot of countries outside of the US particularly. Um, there's also sort of a difference in just baseline sports science understanding. We found that Australia, their base, especially for training, is is much better than the US even. So there's definitely differences uh, culture to culture in terms of what people's base understanding of the various principles and what, um, what parts of their culture sort of push them more in the right or wrong direction depending
0: yeah that 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 makes total sense and i I left a note to remember to ask that because i was very intrigued by that just engaging with a different culture my first time at least in in an asian country Um, and i was just wondering having a trip be a, a professional one involving speaking if you had any changes or observations there. And um, if people are kind of trying to wrap their head uh, as they're listening to this around, you know, what does this mean for their current goals or how might this help them with uh, goal setting moving forward? Are there any, you know, like don't forgets that you want to convey or, or even just simple tips or tricks that you think can also be helpful that people might not consider as they move forward with their goal setting?
1: Um, I think so. I think we covered some of the basic ones that I have, which are, you know, expect obstacles, expect setbacks, don't expect linear progress. Um, sitting down with yourself, deciding what kind of trade-offs you're willing to make for your goals, outlining what actions will get you to your goal and deciding how far you can push those realistically. Um, I think, I had one other one, shoot, it just left me. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, don't plan more than a year in advance. Uh, Oh, I think one other thing is, and this is, there's an interesting study that um, sort of backs this up and the specific study, they've done several versions of this, but one in particular that I like is they brought two groups of people into the lab, they gave one group glasses of water, and they gave the other group uh, milkshakes that had about 2000 calories, like massive (laughs) milkshakes. And then they took them into another room and they said, Okay, this experiment is about food sampling, we want you to taste these different snacks and rate them on these different scales, this whole sort of complex thing to rate the snacks, um, that had nothing to do with the actual experiment. And they'd leave a bowl of each of the snacks and then they just measure how much each group ate. And interestingly, the group that had the 2000 calorie milkshake ate a ton more snacks than the other group that just had water. So there's sort of that. um, And I think we, we feel this on a mental level, you know, the idea that, you know, I messed up the diet today, so nothing matters. I'm just going to carry on down this road of eating more.
0: We've made it this far, so just go off the Right, deep
1: and I think it's it's not only a mental thing. I think there might be some – I don't know what it is or for sure if there is, but I think there might also be a biological aspect that sort of um, triggers an indulgence pathway. If you get some of a good high-calorie food, your body's like, let's stock up on everything we can right now. We're in a period of plenty. We need to get it in now before we're starving. Sort of evolutionary trigger, I'm not sure, but I suspect. Um, so I think recognizing that kind of thing where if you mess up, like you need to sit down and talk to yourself about it and not let yourself slide down that pathway that's really easy to go down. So it's just sort of a, a, a silly thing because the direction is sit down and think about it, but sitting down and thinking about things can have a real impact. So if you mess up, you know, Saturday, think about it before you go, if you're on, you know, obviously if you're on a phallus diet before you go down that road. Um, hold on one second. I need to plug my computer and I'm so sorry.
0: No, you are <laughs> yeah. fine.
1: Okay, and I'm back. Sorry about
0: that. <laughs> no, yeah, you're good. But, you know, just kind of tying this uh, together, Mel, um, it, it does sound like once people have these fonda- foundational ways of approaching behavior change, they want to perhaps layer on top of that Uh, good social support, and and perhaps just an honest, uh, maybe perhaps we can describe this as just like uh, a self-check-in, right? Um, That as life evolves, as Mm -hmm. as, uh, circumstances change, that they are able to perhaps, uh, if they don't have a coach, um, be flexible and be willing to, let things evolve and, and evolve with that. You know, I, I think if someone does have a coach, I, oftentimes when athletes are a little bit, and I've just, this just came to me, it seems to, upon reflection, happen quite a lot, is that if people are a little bit uncertain about their goals and they want to talk about it, just simply talking about it leads to them getting a better understanding of where they want yeah. to go. So I think that just provides more evidence to how strong I mean, that's just a coach, but it could be a friend or a peer, what have you. I think it just provides even more evidence to how perhaps a a social support system can help you with not just the adherence, but also finding out what exactly it is you want out of this goal.
1: Yeah. And I think also, um, which you touched on earlier, the internal locus of control, just making it a life practice to, you know, when things go wrong, ask yourself what you could have done instead of getting angry at the situation or at a person or at the circumstances.
0: Awesome, yeah. I, I think that's super, super valuable. Um, and we want to be respectful of your time, Mel. We've certainly enjoyed it and have learned a lot and know that our audience will as well. Uh, is there anything that's coming down the pipeline for you uh, professionally or, or with RP that kind of ties into any of this? Uh, and if not, perhaps just where can people find you um, either with social media or any updates that you like to keep.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so we have a ton of seminars coming up all over the place. Um, though there should be a, a page on RP site soon that will um, tell everyone where we're going to be if you wanted to come out and see us. Um, My Instagram, my work Instagram is regressiveunderload, and there's an underscore between regressive and underload. Um, That's (laughs) awesome. We have just did, um, James actually just recorded the audiobook version of the Renaissance Diet 2.0, which I'm an author on as well. So you can now listen to it instead of read it. And it's kind of got everything that Renaissance Woman and the previous Renaissance Diet book had, and a whole bunch more. And we're, we're really happy with how it came out. There's a lot of lot of good stuff in there. Um, let's see. Is there anything else? Oh, we're working on it. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this, but I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> we're working on a um, uh, sort of a beginner bundle type thing at RP. Not sure exactly when it's going to be ready, but it's. Um, basically going to be to onboard people completely new to training into training so starting really basic just like mesocycles progressive overload with like very light weights and very simple movements and stuff and I'm super excited about that because I'm really passionate about how important weight training is particularly for women see so many women with you know osteoporosis and just sort of losing muscle mass as they age and it impacts their quality of life and what they're capable of doing so much, and um, so just for health and longevity purposes, I think it's so critical, especially for women to to do some weight training. So I'm excited to have something that might help people who are intimidated by it ease into the idea. Uh,
0: that's actually really exciting to hear because I remember on um, the sport on the sports scientists amongst all of the wildness and and I I, I, I don't. know... Maybe this is like, I don't know if this I, I can ask, but like, are more episodes coming? Is does James know about this?
1: Uh, you know, I they they were talking about not doing it anymore, but everyone has been really asking,
0: so because it was just oh my gosh, it, it, I was I every episode is just killing me, just like the, the comedy <laughs> behind it all, but you know, in fact, besides the, the comedy, which just in and of itself is, I mean, you know, it's certainly like not for like a rated G audience, but um, (laughs) there was one uh, person who presented the question, how would it be best to train a complete novice? And they started kind of unraveling on this. And I don't know how long that was aired, uh, uh, how long ago that was aired, but it seems to address exactly what you're, you're speaking about is how can you create this entry uh, to training? So that's, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's something we've been talking about for years and we're finally like, in the process of making it happen. So I'm, I'm really excited
0: about that. Awesome. Well, we don't want to take uh, any more time uh, of your day, but we have so appreciated and have so enjoyed uh, this conversation.
1: Thank you so much. It's been fun.
0: All right. Have a good day.
1: You too.